0: Hello and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And I am really excited to be back today after taking a brief hiatus to try and get my life a little more organized during this pandemic, which I am not sure how successful I was at that, but I have reached a place where I am feeling more focused and ready to work. And before I introduce you all to today's guest, I want to take a moment to say thank you to all of the essential workers out there. You are the ones keeping this world going when everything else has come to a halt. We owe you a debt of gratitude, which no words can express, but I am staying home for you. And I hope that all of you that are listening are too. And. With that said, it is an honor to introduce my guest today. He is someone that I have looked up to for many years now, and in my opinion, the depth of knowledge and experience in the conservation field that he holds is matched by few. We will dive deeper into some of his experiences as we chat, but to set the stage, Richard Charter is a senior fellow with the Ocean Foundation and has been working for more than 40 years ensure the protection of fragile ecosystems and sensitive coastlines. Richard, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So we've known each other in a work capacity for a number of years now, but before we get into a conversation about more conservation-related topics, I'm curious to know more about your early life and how you got to where you are now. So things like where you grew up and what the community was like that you grew up in.
1: Well, I'm a native Californian, uh, and I grew up in a beautiful little valley called Clayton Valley in the foothills of Mount Diablo, uh, just uh, a little bit east of the East Bay in Central California. And we had a 30-acre truck garden farm, I guess you'd call it, about 10 acres of walnuts and 20 acres of what would be tomatoes or wheat uh, or whatever was seasonal and so I grew up in a pretty rural situation with uh, a lot of nature. Uh, we didn't have large livestock, uh, cows or horses, but we, my sister and I would be put in, in charge of a Buddha room full of baby chicks every year to raise. And uh, we always had more vegetables so we knew what to do with. And I think it was my mother in some ways and my father in other ways that taught me to love nature. Uh, My mother was always growing something. She was a product of the depression, and so anything you could grow to eat and then can, she would fix. And my father was absolutely motivated by going out to the coast and getting abalone from the tide pools back when the limit was about 12, and they were the size of a dinner plate. And he loved abalone. And I got dragged along on every one of those usually early morning dawn trips Uh, We would camp, and he would wade out into the tide pools, and I would uh, wade on the shore or in the tide pools, and I fell in love with all the little things that live uh, at the margin of the ocean, in the estuaries and in the intertidal, and that was, I think, where my motivation for everything I've done in my life began in those tide pools here on the California coast.
0: You know, I feel like everywhere we go, both through space and time, we see different regions of the country and the world, especially during different time periods, valuing and approaching conservation in a wide range of ways. So I'm wondering, um, you know, was conservation and sustainability even part of the conversation? Or were people addressing it when you were growing up?
1: Well, ironically, I think it was President Eisenhower that talked about the watch, watch out for the military industrial complex. In other words, My parents' generation had been through the Great Depression and World War II. So they had a certain inherent strength of character. And uh, even Eisenhower, I think, you know, it didn't used to be that conservation was politically uh, aligned. A Republican president could talk about conservation. And so Eisenhower did. And the distrust of the industrial state and the damage it could do to the planet, I think, was part of the dialogue in the 1950s. Uh, A lot of people don't remember that. And then, of course, as Richard Nixon, for all of his weaknesses, he came along and was responsible for the uh, creation of many of our bedrock environmental laws that even today are being dismantled before our very eyes. So conservation goes back way before that, of course, with John Muir and uh, one of my distant relatives on my father's side was Ulysses S. Grant. And when he was president, he was involved in creating some of our first national parks.
0: Mm -hmm. I know it's been really interesting to see, and, and maybe interesting wasn't the best word, more frustrating to see how politicized conservation has become over the years. And I, you know, I think from the time that I have had collaborating with you on some of these conservation issues that we'll get into in a few minutes here. It's very apparent to me um, that you are very passionate about what you do. And I would love to hear a little bit more about some of, you know, what what are some of your biggest passions in life? And what are those things that drive you to do this work?
1: Well, when I went to college, uh, my intent was to become a research chemist and major in chemical engineering, I segued through industrial design because I got interested in the man-machine interface uh, long before computers, but how humans interface with machinery and technology. And then I segued into majoring in fine arts. My real interest and my real passion is actually art. I was a poster artist uh, during the 1960s, had posters all over the world, And I was uh, basically a production manager of a large silkscreen shop and then started my own business doing graphics for some of the early Silicon Valley companies like uh, IBM and others. And that made me think that I should tie the small amount of my graphic arts and public affairs time to progressive political candidates and progressive political uh, efforts. And so I remember I had a business card printed that said environmental public relations at a time when nobody had ever heard of that field. And everybody would look at my card and say, What in the world is that? And that field, which was tithing, I did free work for things I believed in uh, on the side because I was, you know, making money elsewhere. Uh, that free work gradually took over my whole life. And it became my life. But uh, so I was kind of like, I didn't determine my course, the universe determined my course.
0: Yeah, and I love that you mentioned getting your start in that creative space because there have been a number of conversations I've had on this show with people that are either creatives um, through hobby or you know, they started out in that field or they're they're working toward a career. in Um, you know, photography or writing or some sort of art. And I think that there is a lot of overlap between um, finding new and innovative ways to address these really complex climate problems and people that hold creative minds um, or are working uh, to solve problems creatively. And I think that there's just a lot of space for all different kinds of thinkers to um, join us in this space to help address some of these problems. So I really love that you brought that up. Um, And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about your approach to um, conservation and sustainability, thinking in terms of what does success look like um, for us to reach a place where we're climate resilient and sustainable in our communities?
1: It is obvious that human beings and the species that we are part of uh, is very industrious, uh, kind of like ants and likes to build things and take things apart and not really uh, include a lot of awareness about the impacts of what they're doing. So if you let the economic uh, growth factor take over human society, which is pretty much the definition of capitalism, Uh, as we at least have experienced it, you lose track of the other human priority, which is survival of our species. And you run up against limits, as we're experiencing today. So I would suggest that uh, if you were putting it all in one sentence, it would be surviving on a finite planet by getting smarter. And two of the most influential people in my life when I was uh, involved in higher education were Alan Watts and then uh, Buckminster Fuller. And Bucky Fuller's theme was do more with less. So I kind of combined that with the spiritual Zen approach of Alan Watts and it became, without even thinking about it, sort of the the central theme of my life which is can we do what we're doing as a species in a way that does no harm or minimal harm and when we see harm happening can we be prepared to respond to it we're not too good at that as Deepwater Horizon and a couple other events have demonstrated in other words how can we live with a lighter footprint on this planet and I think we're still uh, getting a barely passing grade on that.
0: I agree. I think it is about moving to a, a place where our communities are resilient and we're prepared for, um, you know, those increasing natural disasters that we're faced, whether it's a stronger hurricane season or wildfires, what have you. Um, how do we move to a place where we're ready for that and we're not just reacting?
1: Well, it's interesting. if. If we had begun when Jimmy Carter was president, doing what he suggested, which was moving away from a carbon-based economy or a carbon-based energy economy, of course he was a nuclear engineer that had operated a nuclear submarine. But he also acknowledged that there were renewable energy sources that we could have could have turned a corner really during the Carter administration and moved toward renewables. And if you think about where we would be now. Had we turned that corner then, I think we would probably be uh, in a much better place, and climate would not even be on our our map of threats. So
0: now I know we have a we have a ton that I want to cover on this show, um, in terms of the issues, and I feel like we could do an entire podcast series about your career because you have done so much, and you are still done it, doing a ton of work. Um, But quickly, I'm wondering, what comes to the forefront when you think about some of the highlights of your career so far?
1: Uh, A series of happy accidents, really. Um, In the mid-70s, I was quietly living on the coast of Sonoma County, California, uh, silkscreening glass, layers of glass, and selling them at craft fairs when I learned that uh, Interior Secretary Cecil Andrus was going to put offshore drilling rigs in front of my house and in front of Bodega Bay. I thought, uh, well, I I know a little bit about communications. Uh, So we printed some, we got a printer actually to print for free some little brochures about offshore drilling on the Sonoma coast. That, a year later, was a very large organization called Friends of the Coast uh, with a board of directors and a nonprofit status that had stopped the offshore drilling plan. And uh, of course it came back later when Ronald Reagan was president and James Watt was secretary of interior. We had to up our game, but I was tired of working for free. So I applied for a job with a coalition of local governments, cities and counties in California, and about five of my friends applied for the same job. We all went to a team interview with a bunch of county supervisors. It was very stressful. I had to put on an actual necktie. And uh, then all of, all of us, ap- <laughs> ap- 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 those who applied, we all went out for a beer afterwards, and we were very unattached as to who got the actual job. And uh, they said, "Well, you'll know in a couple of weeks," and I never heard from them, so I forgot about it. And about a month later, I got a call from the county administrative office in the county of Santa Cruz. And they said, uh, "We have Supervisor so and so on the phone for you. Would you please uh, pick up? The, well, he'll pick up the line." And and by the way, congratulations! And I say, "What do you mean?" And she said, "Oh, don't tell him I told you, but you got the job." <laughs> <laughs> so while I had forgot, literally forgotten about it because I figured, well, it would have been nice if they got back to me, uh, I, had, I had moved on in my mind. Actually, I did get the job. And they gave me a old metal desk, an IBM Selectric typewriter, an empty file cabinet, an empty Rolodex, and a black rotary dial telephone in a planning department in Redwood City, California, and said, we're uh, by all these counties want offshore drilling stopped we know it's impossible to do but at least we want you to try and i had no idea what i was doing i just knew that it was a paying gig and uh, so i would go down there two days a week long commute which was only possible then couldn't do it now with the traffic and i would uh, they, they said, well, call people and make connections. And I did. And then I went to Washington and they said, well, find out who's in charge of this issue and go see them. So I did. And the next thing I knew, I lived on an airplane for the next uh, 35 years, basically somewhere 30,000 feet over Ohio. <laughs> and uh we do not. We do not have offshore drilling rigs on the uh, northern or central California coast. We have four national marine sanctuaries instead. I didn't do all that. It was millions of other people. But I was like, uh, I learned to be the synapse in the neurological sense. Somebody has to deconstruct and explain the legalese and the government jargon to the average person who's motivated to save the place where they live. And so that became my role as a translator.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it, it definitely takes a, a large community of people to make all of that work happen. But I think the important thing is, is, is realizing what your role is and doing it well and putting in that work and making these connections. And, um, you know, over time, all of these things add up to be so influential and have a large impact, as we have seen. Um, with the state of marine monuments and sanctuaries off the coast um, and some of the safeguards that have been in place um, to protect our coastlines from oil and gas development. Um, Speaking of oil and gas, I am wondering if you could spend a little bit of time laying the foundation for listeners for where we stand today with U.S. offshore oil and gas development. Excuse me.
1: Well, if you visualize your coastline of any state in the lower 48 or Alaska as the state controlling generally in most places three miles from shore, out to three miles from shore, a little further off of some of the Gulf Coast states, but Atlantic and Pacific Coast, three miles from shore, the state controls it. And beyond that, the federal government has divided it into little squares called tracks, T-R-A-C-T-S, tracks. Given each one a number, and periodically is authorized uh, under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act (OCS Lands Act) to lease those off to the highest bidder in the oil industry. In other words, each tract has a number; they are bid on like uh, you know a bingo game, and uh, in that lease sale, they are they are transferred to the oil industry for offshore drilling, and that is really kind of the nexus of what we face because President Obama. Uh, He inherited a 27-year bipartisan congressional moratorium that had begun, uh, well, it actually began with James Watt in about 1982, being Secretary of Interior. He was going to drill virtually everywhere. He was the first Donald Trump, really. And Congress said, no, you're not. We'll cut off your money. And that became known as the Outer Continental Shelf Moratorium. That was renewed every year in Congress, sometimes by a single vote in the key committee. And then when Obama came along, he he wasn't going to challenge that, so he went along with it. In fact, both of the President Bush 1 and 2 had both issued presidential deferrals that overlapped that congressional moratorium. So we went into Trump really with the entire Pacific coast protected from offshore drilling the entire Atlantic coast protected from offshore drilling. Over the course of, you know, 27 years, each year we're doing that. In Alaska, we had gained permanent protection for the largest sockeye salmon fishery on the planet in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Not a marine sanctuary, but a fishing zone done with indigenous science. And then we have a smattering of what are called national marine sanctuaries that are the only piece of water that's permanently protected from offshore drilling. And so the National Marine Sanctuaries have always been our holy grail. It was a way to get to permanent protection. Along comes Donald Trump, and he invented what he called the America First uh, Energy Policy. We actually, during James Watt, we called it Drain America First because it, it really leaves America very vulnerable. If you uh, pump and drain and sell, particularly sell offshore to other countries, America's resources, then America doesn't have any if we had an emergency in the future. But the America First Energy Policy with Donald Trump introduced a five-year offshore leasing plan comprising here in California, six lease sales off the state of California, two in Southern, two in Central, and two in Northern California, a couple each off of Oregon and Washington. So the whole West Coast and the entire Atlantic coast from Rhode Island all the way down to Cape uh, Kennedy in Florida was going to be open repeatedly for offshore drilling under Donald Trump. Thanks to a favorable court decision, uh, that particular five-year program had to be shelved at least temporarily and also a number of the major media markets in Florida told Donald Trump that if he tried to drill off of Florida, he would not be reelected in 2020. So he backed off. So we have what we call detent uh, right now. Everything is kind of on hold. But if this is a second term of a Trump administration, God help us at the beginning of next year, all of those lease sales, I think, will come back with a vengeance and they will be Given the poor, starving oil companies begging for favors right now and getting them because of the pandemic, those leases would be given away at uh, rock bottom uh, giveaway prices. And once they have those leases, the oil industry just sits on them until oil prices come back up. So I would say what's at stake in the presidential race is the entire U.S. coastline, among other things.
0: Yeah. So now that we're in this holding pattern, where we're we're you know waiting out this pandemic and and you know looking to see what happens with the upcoming election, how you know we're, not everything has stopped. I know that there are communities that are very active in working to ensure that their coastlines are protected and their their um, you know their residents are protected from offshore oil and gas development. Um, Can you share a little bit about the ways that you're engaged and how some of these communities are working to protect themselves and their coastlines?
1: Well, I think communities are not going to sleep anywhere in the U.S. Uh, Local communities, of course, are where the impacts of offshore drilling fall. Whether it's the day-to-day pollution of the ocean from routine discharges of spent muds and cuttings or, you know, routine, unfortunately, routine small oil spills or, God help us, the very large accidents uh, and like the Deepwater Horizon or Taylor Energy where, you know, Taylor Energy off of Louisiana, the, the oil leak from the seafloor that was created by a hurricane damage to some drilling rigs. Uh, has continued for beyond a decade now. Uh, you can make accidents happen with offshore drilling that never stop and that we have virtually no response for. So well, I think local communities are very cognizant of that, and they're also, whether they're you know, partisan one way or the other, they recognize that a second Trump term is extremely hazardous to the economic health of particularly a clean coast economy like most of these communities have and have been uh, reminded of very clearly during the pandemic. So the shift really has been toward what can a local community do to protect itself from what is fundamentally a federal decision? And it turns out that uh, a gentleman named Dan Haefeli back in uh, the 1980s Uh, was able to work with a couple dozen local communities here in California to uh, convince them and help them to adopt onshore facilities ordinances. In other words, these either ban outright or put to the vote of the populace any onshore facilities for offshore drilling that might be proposed anytime in the future. And so those, you know, a couple dozen onshore facilities ordinances in California still stand they are generally part of the community's local coastal plan and uh they still would work if they needed to be used and so we're creating more of them we've been temporarily derailed uh, and a couple of them that were about ready to do that by the pandemic but as soon as the pandemic lifts or virtual uh, meetings of boards of supervisors become more familiar uh and we're starting to see talk about this now on the Atlantic coast, the mid and South Atlantic, which of course is the prime target of the Trump offshore drilling plan. Communities there recognize that they can control their own land use in there. They have that jurisdiction. And this is, you know, legally bomb proof. It's been uh, vetted with attorneys to the point where it can be done in a way that the oil companies can't overturn it. So if you ban onshore facilities, that would be needed to support offshore drilling. What this does is it creates a chilling effect on the actual leasing of tracks. In other words, an oil company looks ashore and says, if I find something out there, I'm not gonna be able to bring it ashore. That makes it less economically attractive. Nothing's less economically attractive right now than oil uh, and gas, particularly oil, as a negative market value today. So. You basically uh, have communities that are looking at how they can protect themselves, which I think is very smart uh, in case we do have a second Trump term.
0: I agree. I think it's it's very smart and it's interesting because of, you know, the one of the platforms that Trump ran on, and I know you have to take any of that with a grain of salt, but is to to, you know, reduce federal regulation and oversight on states and give the power back to the states. And now you see that sort of turning back on him in terms of what his priorities are and states standing up and saying, well, okay, in that case, then I don't want drilling off of my coast. And here is how uh, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen.
1: Well, we have not seen uh, the actuality as in many things that the president says. We haven't seen the states' rights theme play out at least not with respect to the environment in general. And certainly we've seen the contrary play out with respect to offshore drilling. A uh, state with a federally approved coastal zone management plan, uh, as many states have, has always had the right to object to a federally approved uh project off its shore, including and especially offshore drilling. And the Trump administration issued a advance notice of proposed rulemaking that was designed to gut states' rights with respect to federal offshore drilling plans. And of course, the protest against that was vehement and articulated by many governors and states' attorney generals. But we We actually are fighting for states' rights right now in this administration, and particularly as it stands uh, with respect to offshore drilling. States have the right to object, but uh, Trump's trying to take it away.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think something that we're getting at here is, um, you know, there are stark differences between management styles of the Trump administration and those administrations that have become have come before this one, and you know, relating to basically anything, in my opinion, but for the purpose of this conversation, you know, focusing on natural resources. So I'm interested in your perspective as someone who is deeply involved in this work and has served both President Bush and President Obama on the U.S. Department of Energy's Methane Hydrates Advisory Committee and in a number of other leadership and advisory roles. What differences have you noticed between the administrations you've served, and Trump's management styles for our natural resources?
1: Well, I think the most uh, unique thing that I'm seeing is that protection of local and regional economies based on a clean coast set of industries like you know, commercial fishing, tourism, that kind of thing, protection of that has always been bipartisan. It was bipartisan support for that that enabled us, uh, with a lot of help from many members of Congress and millions of citizens and hundreds of local governments. It was that bipartisan spirit in the Congress and in the White House that led us to be able to enact 27 years of annual congressional moratorium on offshore oil and gas drilling in federal waters. What I am seeing now is a an alignment, unfortunately. by many Republican members of Congress, not all, but some, who are aligning themselves with the Trump drill everywhere, damn the environmental and economic damage it does. Uh, And so it's become kind of uh, portrayed as a partisan issue. It's not. The environment has never been a partisan issue. Some of the most important environmental laws, as I mentioned in this nation were created by Republican administrations. Uh, So if you look at the bigger picture of the current environmental protection rollbacks that we're seeing, it's one of uh, trying to play various interests off against one another. And so when you have the Democrats controlling the House and the Republicans controlling the Senate, and the Republicans controlling the White House, the effort is to sort of derail everything related to the environment by claiming it was created by Barack Obama. That is simply not the case. It's not factual. Many of the things that are being dismantled were Republican ideas and Republican accomplishments. And that, to me, is very strange.
0: Yes, yeah, I agree. And you know, thinking about the bigger picture, and You know, these management challenges are not exclusive to oil and gas, even though we've been focusing on them mostly for the first part of this conversation. But, you know, through my day job with the Healthy Oceans Coalition, we try to keep track as much as we can um, of, you know, keep track of these environmental rollbacks. And it's a little overwhelming because there are a lot of them. I think last I checked, there have been upwards of a hundred rules and regulations that either have been or are currently being rolled back. Um, So it's a much, you know, the oil and gas part of it is just one piece in a much larger puzzle um, that we are trying to, you know, place together and hold together in a way that will hopefully end up looking like a sustainable future for the U S and the rest of the world. And, I am wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on all of these rollbacks and what are the implications and what you know what are the impacts that we're gonna see post this Trump administration um, you know, unraveling a lot of these really cornerstone protections that we've put in place over the years?
1: Well, the first thing one would see if we had a change of administrations uh, would be in January, obviously. The term is called rescissions, reversing as much of the damage that has been done by this administration as possible. And that began with, of course, Bears uh, Ears and Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument boundary changes. Uh, we still have all of our California National Marine Sanctuaries, quote, under review by the Secretary of Commerce. Most people don't even know that. I don't know if the Secretary of Commerce even knows that. That could affect boundary expansions, that could affect regulations. Obviously, the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts off of New England is a target for this administration, it appears. And so, in the larger scale of protected lands and waters, preventing damage during the duration of this administration that we're currently in is the most important thing. And then, once we get a little house cleaning at the White House, uh, reversing them is very important. So that puts us at a very key time right now because we're kind of at the threshold of things done uh, between now and the end of the Trump administration, if in fact it ends at the end of this current term, can be reversed, most of them. Some of them that were done earlier may not. So you have to sort of pick and choose between what you prevent the bad things right now, one of the big ones is the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which affects things like waste pits around oil drilling pads. Uh, During the pandemic, the EPA has basically left the building and not minding the store on even existing regulations. But if you look at rollbacks to air quality, uh, to the uh, NEPA as it affects wetlands and uh, you know, waterways. I mean, it is about a hundred different rollbacks. We're actually working with one of our colleagues, uh, groups in Florida right now, listing the hundred rollbacks, uh, of the Trump administration, the, the wholesale attack on the environment, if you will, that is going to be having, uh, bad, uh, implications for the American people for decades, even if we do our best to reverse it. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to reverse some of it, but there's going to be, I think, a great demand for people with expertise in where the, you know, where the damage was done during Trump and how you would fix it. And I, I don't think there's actually too many people uh, still in government that know how to do that. But it is possible to fix a lot of this uh, damage it'll have to be done quickly. What happens in the first, you know, month or so of the new administration, if we get one, will be important. If we don't, if we have a second Trump administration, the damage to the planet, the environment, and the health of the American people will be virtually incalculable and irreversible. And I'm an
2: optimist. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by lja engineering with 28 offices along the gulf coast the folks at lja engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration coastal infrastructure rivers and channels numeric modeling disaster recovery and design and construction oversight and now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your Dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable Dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com.
0: You know, one of the ways that we, the tools that we have to protect and conserve some of these really special and important places off of our coast is through monuments and sanctuaries. I know that you've mentioned them a bit during this conversation. But I'd like to sort of rewind a little bit to the basics, just for listeners' sake, in case anybody is unfamiliar with monuments and sanctuaries. And um, have you you clarified what they are, what are monuments and sanctuaries, and why are they important um, to protect these areas?
1: Well, let's take them one at a time. The National Marine Sanctuary System, uh, last time I looked, I believe there were 13 National Marine Sanctuaries nationwide, maybe 14 by now. we always viewed when we were doing the annual one year at a time renewal of the offshore drilling moratorium, which only lasted a year, we always saw a National Marine Sanctuary as our holy grail for gaining permanent protection from offshore drilling. And so that in many, but not every single case, many of the situations and the geographic areas uh created national weed sanctuaries for that reason, permanent protection from offshore drilling. And they are created with a lot of citizen involvement. There's a transparent process. You nominate a location, local governments, uh, elected officials at every level of government get involved, and the people are very involved. And then their management is guided, in each case, by a sanctuary advisory council who advises the sanctuary superintendent as to how to manage it over time. Uh, They are advisory only, but they generally are listened to pretty carefully. So that process is still working, but these are relatively small areas geographically. Uh, The Marine Monuments, National Marine Monuments, are an extension of the Antiquities Act, which uh, really, If you've watched Ken Burns' series on national parks, it has a very good delineation of how the Antiquities Act first granted presidents the ability to unilaterally set aside areas of national significance uh, anywhere in the nation. And so to that, we owe Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Grand Canyon and Acadia National Park, I mean, all of the iconic places that uh, the public is now dying to get back into, no pun intended, uh, all of those places are protected by a president who said, this is in the public interest, this is in the national interest. So, President Obama created one of these. uh, He created many of them, but he created one of them off of New England called the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts, which, of course, President Trump immediately uh, took exception to. He hasn't done anything to it yet. Um, There are others throughout the Pacific. So those need to be defended for the duration of the current war on the environment that we're seeing emanate from the White House. And then the National Marine Sanctuaries uh, and some of the national monuments have their own intrinsic threats. Here in California, where one of our most iconic national marine sanctuaries, the Greater Farallon National Marine Sanctuary, we consider the most highly protected place really in U.S. waters. Uh, It even has a regulation that prevents damage that it's called enter and injure regulation. If something originates outside of sanctuary waters and flows into or washes into the sanctuary, that is you know, regulated and banned. Uh, but we have a Trump administration now getting ready to greenlight the helicopter distribution of one and a half tons of one of the most controversial and toxic uh, anticoagulant second generation rodenticides on the Southeast Farallon Islands uh, to try to kill some some introduced mice that were probably brought there by Sir Francis Drake, or, you know, long time ago, and it kills everything else. It's an ecosystem poison that will kill everything on the island, and then the idea is reintroduce the things you like, and it not only kills things that you're trying to get rid of, like the mice and some uh, burrowing owls that come out to feed on the mice, it actually, uh, it's it's, it's a systemic poison. So it's going to be there for a while. It's going to get into every species in the entire food chain. So we're having to defend what we already protected. Ironically, this was something the Obama head of Fish and Wildlife Service would not touch with a 10-foot pole. But now we have sympathetic people to very dumb ideas uh, in the administration, including the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, who came straight out of Monsanto, into that seat. So we have uh, threats even in our most protected areas. Similarly, the uh, Northeast Canyons and Seamounts off of New England is, uh threatened in various ways. So now we're on the defense mode. Uh, we've protected it. It's guaranteed permanent protection and we have to defend it. And so uh, one of the most important things I was taught when I was first working in the environmental field and I don't know if David Brower originated it, but he said, uh, all of, in the environmental movement, all of our victories are temporary and all of our losses are permanent. And so we're finding that even our permanent victories are threatened now and could become permanent losses if we don't pay very close attention, especially right now during this this fog of war that's represented by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, so you know, as we're sitting here listening to some of the challenges that these sanctuaries monuments are facing, I'm sure some of the listeners are interested in knowing uh, if there's anything that they can do to help stand up for these protected areas or get involved um, with, you know, having their input heard or helping protect these areas.
1: That is the most important question because if you live or care about Uh, live near or care about a particular piece of coastline, or even if you're in Kansas and the coast of Canvas, we always like to say is in California, or if you're part of the Inland Ocean Coalition that's based in Colorado in Boulder, uh, you have a favorite piece of ocean and you have a member of Congress or a senator. Now the protocols for contacting their staff, uh, generally it's working through staff, Have changed and evolved during the pandemic uh, because I used to just advise people go see them. You know, one on one communication, really, Congress to the degree that people work with Congress, it's an oral tradition and you have to explain things to them. But you need to advocate for permanent protection if you don't have it. And if you do have it in either a National Marine Monument or a National Marine Sanctuary, you need to advocate for continued protection. Nothing is sacred in this current administration in Washington. And those calls, those emails, those letters, those contacts, not only with the congressional office, whether it's House or Senate, but also with your local media as a guest op-ed, those add up. I mean, those are the reason why the successes we've seen in the marine protection effort the Marine Protection Movement, those are the reason for the successes is literally millions of individual Americans who took the trouble to protect their coast. And there's no question, I didn't do this. No individual did it. Uh, no president did it. No member of Congress did it. It's the people who have to fight for what they care about. And it turns out, we've observed that a lot of them actually care about the coast. So, uh Get directly involved. There are any number of great organizations in the NGO movement uh, that you may be attracted to. All of them are doing wonderful work. If I start listing them, I'll leave somebody out and they'll be insulted. But the actual uh, ability of the average American with enough dedication to protecting the environment to make positive change is incalculable. And if you don't like how things are turning out, uh, kick it a few times, you know, kick in some doors in Washington, burn up some phone lines, um, you know, make it impossible for the, you know, interest of destruction to win and wait and see. Things will turn out differently over time uh, because we actually, as humans, we're slow to react sometimes to bad things, but our instinct survival is very strong. And that, that's what gives me confidence and gives me hope. Uh, not just about offshore drilling protections, not just about you know national marine monuments, but really about the climate issue, which is actually the overarching issue, is how much carbon we're gonna put into the atmosphere, compromising human health and even human survival in many places and how we're going to uh, engage in adaptive management of our coastal interface as we deal with sea level rise and ocean acidification, issues that the average person really is just now being introduced to. And you can see how quickly the public can learn about something like habitat destruction, for instance, which really is at the fundamental heart of why we're having uh, a pandemic threatening human society in the way that it is. We destroyed too much habitat. We came into contact in bad ways with, you know, some species that we're not supposed to be that close to, uh, and viruses uh, jumped the human boundary and became, you know, damaging to human health and even fatal to the human species. So. The things that could go wrong if we don't engage, particularly on climate and air quality and water quality and the health of our coast, the things that could go wrong are huge. So uh, it's a good time to work for survival.
0: Yeah, you know, I I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that in terms of getting out there and contacting your member of Congress and speaking out about the issues you care about, I almost feel like a broken record within my own community of. Trying to encourage the folks that I'm connected with to realize their voice and their the power that they have in it, and whether that's calling your member of Congress or tweeting at them, or you know hosting a podcast about it, um, talking to your neighbor. There's so many different ways that you can have an impact and make change. But the first step is talking about it and sharing what you care about, because you know the way that I see it is you know, no matter what you care about, there's somebody on the other side that believes the opposite of you. And at least with the work that we do with climate, we can be sure that they're out there meeting with our members of Congress, being outspoken. Um, You know, a lot of those interests are very well funded, much more well funded than we are in our work. Um, So, you know, I see it as our job and our responsibility to get out there and make some noise about it. Otherwise, people aren't going to know about it or, or care about it.
1: Well, don't be intimidated in any way by the other side being better funded. We've always known that, and when we see, you know, some of these, uh, you know, Heritage Foundation and others who are trying to undo environmental laws, uh, exercising their access to the White House, we just tie their shoelaces together and push them down the stairs of one of the congressional buildings. Uh, The fact is, if you want to get the attention of your own member of Congress, uh, obviously direct contact is important. But if there is a, nothing gets their attention more quickly than a guest op-ed or better yet, a news story in the papers or the television outlets in their district or their state, if they're a senator, uh, a a news story or a guest op-ed that implies they're not doing their job in protecting the citizens of their you know, their electorate, their, their jurisdictional electorate. If they're not doing their job and it says so in the paper, uh, you got their attention, believe me. They have staff that tracks the media very closely, almost as closely as Donald Trump reads the paper on the toilet all night. And you have their attention when they see that, you know, I mentioned the five-year offshore drilling plan, which was going to bring drilling to the you know, coast of Florida. As soon as it became evident that the five-year offshore drilling plan could cost Trump Florida in the presidential race, he was out of there. Not just Mar-a-Lago, but you know, it's if it's a threat to re-election, you got their full attention. Um, And then zero in on a narrow issue that you really care about. You can't fix everything. At least I can't, and I've learned that the hard way. So you have to play this uh, kind of one. One hole at a time, if you will. I'm not a golfer, but, you know, where it lands, play that. Uh, right now, I'm determined not to let them kill everything on the Southeast farallon Islands. And we have a website called PoisonFreeSanctuary.org where you can take action on that. PoisonFreeSanctuary.org. Uh, that's my issue right now because we took all of these three decades to create this National Marine Sanctuary and now... Somebody has this absolutely destructive idea to harm it, not only now, but harm every species on it and in it uh, by pretending the pellets of poison won't go into the water, which we've always seen happen elsewhere. And the idea is pick something that you care about. Uh, We love to camp in Yosemite. Yosemite is protected. But, you know, decisions are being made today about your favorite place whether it's on land or in the ocean and make sure you're part of those decisions uh, it's absolutely essential and I, I love the healthy oceans coalition because it's configured geographically across the world and in a way that brings together a diversity of interests but also you know takes care of, of making sure that the economics of a healthy coastline what we call the clean coast economy is protected because if we don't take care of the oceans uh, and we start being unable to respond to what, you know, the oceans have been a little too successful at absorbing carbon uh, during the climate crisis, uh, we're starting to see, uh, you know, ocean acidification change in the pH of the actual ocean waters. It's not consistent. Everywhere in the ocean, but certain hot spots are there, and they're really dangerous in terms of shellfish propagation, things like that. And then, ecosystem shifts that are happening as the temperature of the ocean changes. Um, These are big picture items, but you can affect them by public policy. By affecting public policy, you change and improve the world we're all going to live in. I have three grandchildren, the world they're going to live in. couple of them, I think, might be going to be attorneys. Uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of lawsuits about the environment, I have a feeling. So if you're inclined to go into the law profession, for heaven's sake, become an environmental uh, litigator because we're going to need you. Uh, I recommend people look at internships on Capitol Hill once that becomes available again, internships and volunteer work with your favorite local NGO Save your own immediate environment in the context of the planet. Uh, because if you don't, nobody's going to do it. And uh, collectively, we can make a difference and I'm absolutely positive of that because I've seen it happen over the course of nearly half a century now.
0: Yeah, and it's that collective you know action that we can all take in realizing what we care about and what we can control that I think is so powerful um, in terms of creating a sustainable and resilient world. Um, you know, it feels like we're playing a lot of defense right now. Um, but I'm wondering if there are some success stories that we can find hope in relating to monuments and sanctuaries. Um, you know, like a little success story. I feel like I always look for those throughout my day because it seems, you know, if you focus on the negative, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, But there are opportunities for us to make progress and for us to make these little wins in the Trump administration.
1: Well, each one, every single one of our National Marine Sanctuaries is, is in fact a success story And every one of our National Marine monuments, or even our terrestrial national monuments, is a success story. And Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante uh, National Monuments uh, at Four Corners were success stories, and I hope we can bring them back. Uh, One of my favorite uh, National Marine sanctuaries is Thunder Bay near Alpena, Michigan. And they have a little museum there. And in that museum, they have the kind of the story of how the public and the local government coalesced to support the creation of the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And originally, there was wide opposition. And in in that museum, there's a little rusty kind of small button that says "No NOAA," NOAA, the agency, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. No NOAA button. That historic button shows you how far. That community came from opposing permanent protection for Thunder Bay to supporting it, gaining it, and then wanting to make it even bigger, wanting because of what it was doing to rescue the economy of this community, not too far from Detroit, where you know the economy was in bad shape when the fiberboard plant closed and everything else was going to hell. The National Marine Sanctuary became an underpinning of the successful economy there. And when you got off the plane at the little airport in Alpena, there was a big banner that said, welcome to the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. That's how far it came from a button that said, no, no, to a banner in the airport that reminded you it was integral to the to the economy of the region. And so there are a success, success stories like that at virtually every National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, they need to be protected, as we're doing here with the Greater Farallon National Marine Sanctuary, not just with the poison drop, but with the uh, boundary expansion that was done by President Obama. That's still threatened, as far as we know, by Trump's toilet tweets at night. But we, you know, we need to protect what we've won, and there's so much more to win. If you see something unprotected, uh, I have a virtual in my mind a sheet of Eight and a half by 11 paper, it has two columns. The left column is unprotected ocean. The right column is protected ocean. I don't care if it's for one year. I don't care if it's permanent. It doesn't do everything fine, but always move your ocean from the left unprotected column to the right protected column with the goal being permanent protection in perpetuity forever.
0: I love it. I think that's really important insight. And, you know, just reminding everybody that these things take time. Um, And, you know, you might take a few steps forward and then a few steps back. But if we keep pushing forward, um, you know, thinking about the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, or when when you were talking about Thunder Bay, I started thinking about Mallows Bay and the Potomac River. You know, I used to live down in Maryland and um, have had the good fortune of being able to kayak around that area before it got its designation and um, it is just so spectacular floating around all of that history with um, the incredible amount of shipwrecks and the fleets, the ghost fleets that are there um, that when you visit it's it's very apparent why it is important to protect these areas. Um, and it you know it feels like each of the sanctuaries and the monuments that each have their own feel and their own, ecosystems and their own little slice of history that they're protecting. Um, But these things take time.
1: They have always taken time. If you look at the process by which Yellowstone was protected, if you look at the process by which Yosemite was protected, uh, even the Grand Canyon, there was so much opposition uh, to protecting the Grand Canyon that first it became a national monument before it ever became a national park. Uh, Sometimes a new president would have to get elected before something could actually happen to protect a place. But each of these generations has learned that what you protect now is all you're going to have left. Period. Full stop. This is future generations are going to look back as we now look back at Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, uh, at our current National Marine Sanctuary system. We look back at it. And we think, oh, we're really glad that somebody in a prior generation had the foresight and the tenacity and the patience. I I will say you're right about being patient to get that protected. Uh, Biscayne, uh, you know, National Park uh, down in Biscayne Bay, there's the first ever coral reef preserve. Uh, in, in national in U.S waters, and it's been under threat in terms of uh, it, it really deserves a permanent fishery closure to protect the coral reef. This is the only one in U.S waters that's protected in that way. And uh, fighting to defend what's already been protected at places like Biscayne Coral Reef Preserve, is very important because you're setting a precedent for the future. If if they can knock over one protected place, the development interests or the, whatever the interests are, national marine manufacturers, whoever's f- trying to knock it over, if they knock over one, then you get the room full of dominoes effect, and they'll attack other protected areas. So, we're not just in a you know they they say in sports the. The best defense is a is a good offense, and that definitely applies to the conservation movement.
0: So as we start to wrap up, I am going to ask you a series of broader questions that I started asking guests as a little bit of an experiment um, because, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to sit down and speak to all of these really bright minds and interesting people that are doing great work all over the world. And, um, you know, I think part of my job in hosting this is to make sure that we get Your insight on the broader climate challenges that we all face. Um, And then over time, it's just been really interesting to see what themes and insights and ideas have come out of everybody's responses. So um, we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing today?
1: I believe that human beings need to learn to live on the planet in a sustainable way. Now, I know that's trite, it's become kind of a you know, a pat statement, but that is the nexus of it. It embraces climate because climate is kind of an all-encompassing issue, which is very hard for some reason to explain to people. And I think individuals and groups who care about a particular place or a particular issue are well advised to zero in on that one issue. In other words, People say, what have you ever done to protect the climate? And I say, well, I was blessed and very privileged to have a role, not a deterministic role, but a small role in keeping what may be gigatons of carbon safely sequestered under our outer continental shelf, you know, by preventing offshore drilling in really sensitive waters. That has a climate impact. So uh, pick pick a subject, pick a, a place, pick a you know, a threat, and address that threat, and don't be overwhelmed by the larger picture, but focus on that threat in the context of the larger picture, which really climate is probably the umbrella issue because it's going to affect human health, and we've said that for years and now we're unfortunately, uh, learning that other things can affect human health. This isn't necessarily a climate-induced pandemic, but there will be some if we're not careful. And, you know, if we don't care about the survival of our species, then uh, what are we doing here anyway? I, I don't think we're going to be able to recolonize another planet, although there are people I've met, in particularly in the petroleum industry, that think that, you know, creating a colony on Mars and powering it with methane hydrates or something is, is the way to go. I think it's better to take care of the one planet. <laughs> Seriously, I there know. are people. It's, I've met them. It's, I, um, know.
0: And, I know. I know. And it's like people are thinking about putting all of this time and effort and money into moving to another planet. Like, they would rather do that than take care of the one that we've found ourselves on.
1: I think it was Buckminster Fuller that called this lifeboat Earth. This is the lifeboat you got to take care of it. Yeah. It's not <laughs> rocket science. Uh, we're not going to survive by relocating, uh, you know, and, and finding a Goldilocks planet similar enough to earth to go live there. I think we're better off taking care of the one we have.
0: I agree. And because I try to end my shows on a more hopeful note um, and positive note, I'm wondering what gives you hope and what are you hopeful for moving forward?
1: I am guided by, I hesitate to use the word spiritual, but I'm guided by what I see in nature. Nature is extremely resilient, whether it's forests or the ocean or even the desert. If humans would just leave things alone, nature will come back, just like we're seeing the wildlife come back to the closed parks right now. But on a greater scale, If you have an overfished part of the ocean that's been hammered is the term uh, in the negotiations I've been in over the California Breed Life Protection Act, breed protected areas. If an area has been hammered by overfishing, uh, just leave it alone. We can't as a species necessarily restore things, but if we let nature restore things, it will, and it absolutely will mother nature bats last and that's what gives me hope is if we can just stop doing the damage uh nature will come back and that can be complicated it could require patience it could require all of your life energy for decades uh if you're not careful and yet um what gives me faith is nature, the power and the resilience and the ability of nature to replenish and rebound. And it's quicker. I think in the oceans, what I see in the oceans is the uh, ability of, you know, ocean currents to move uh, larvae around to replenish a new area. That's been harmed. I mean, the oceans are pretty quick to make a comeback. So, If we just work on things that let nature do its healing thing, uh, I think that's one of the most constructive things we can do, and that's what gives me hope.
0: Yeah, and this last one is we have a lot of young professionals that listen to the show and lifelong learners, and um, I always like to leave them with a little bit of advice. So this is a two-parter, starting with what is the best advice that you've ever been given?
1: The best advice I was ever given was to pick a a specialized area of concern, a a very specialized focus, not try to fix everything, not do broadband, you know, save the planet all at once. But pick an area of expertise and become the most knowledgeable person you can be about that one area of expertise and then become a lever become uh, a change agent on that one area. And uh, if you're gonna work with the elected representatives, whether they're your county commissioners or your state legislature or Congress, become the go-to voice, become the person they go to to get their questions answered and and, and be the respected source of information uh, so that they come to you and then you uh, are able to provide Trustworthy guidance, but don't try to do everything. Narrow focus and uh, become the fulcrum for leverage to actually make systemic change. Best best advice I was ever given.
0: And then on the flip side of that, what advice do you have for our listeners?
1: We had a gentleman, uh, the late Bill Cordum, here in Sonoma County. He he worked locally. He. Uh, started probably a dozen of the most influential conservation groups in our county over the course of his lifetime. He was a large animal veterinarian. He then, on you know, his volunteer work, changed the face of Sonoma County where we live. And his favorite saying is my favorite saying that I will convey to your listeners, which is, never give up. You know, just stick with it. Uh, You will have setbacks, you will have disappointments. In the long run, if you stick with it and never give up, you will win. You're on the side of nature. And so never give up.
0: I love it. And, you know, as we've seen, Richard has never given up and I don't plan on it. Um, You know, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, This was an absolute pleasure, as always, to talk with you. I feel like I always learn something every time we talk, and it's um, such a joy to be able to have this conversation, but then more broadly to collaborate with you through the work that we do through the Healthy Oceans Coalition. You have been such an asset to the conservation community, and um, I'm really excited to share this conversation with our listeners and then continue our work together as uh, you know, we come into this election season um, and potentially pick up uh, another serious fight against oil and gas uh, into the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your work with the Healthy Oceans Coalition. And thank all your listeners for caring enough to make a difference.
0: I'd also like to thank the listeners. So if you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and other shows like this one, Uh, subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, rates and reviews are always appreciated. And if you would like to connect with us on social media, we are at Coastal News 365 on Twitter and Instagram and the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Facebook. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastline.